got my coffee and today's guest here with me, so we're ready to roll. I'm Michael Hanf, Executive Partner at Taiwan Advisory. Welcome to our Circular Coffee Break podcast, where we casually talk about everything circular and beyond. We hope, as always, the podcast is interesting, insightful, and provides new perspectives for you. Um, but I mean, if you have feedback, improvement ideas, suggestions, drop us a note um, at info at taiva.com or put a comment into your favorite podcast platform. Now, to state that our guest today is a circular supply chain expert, in my opinion, is an understatement. I would maybe even use the word guru. And she for sure has been my go-to person for circularity in the supply chain context. She's the author of the book Circular Supply Chain, 17 Common Questions, uh, which I actually recommend for everyone who wants to get to know uh, and get a quick understanding on the topic. So I, I've definitely been reading the book and it was very insightful and gave me a lot of new, new ideas and perspectives. She holds a, a Bachelor of Arts in Business Administration from the Western Washington University, an MSc in Supply Chain and Operations Management from the University of Liverpool, and is currently a doctoral candidate at the Edinburgh School, Harriet Watt University, with a focus on logistics, materials, and supply chain management. She started off her career at Microsoft, where she spent uh, six years in supply chain management in the US and the UK. From there, she went to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where she worked in health supply chains. And in 2019, she moved to GE Digital as a senior principal manufacturing product management. More recently, she has been a senior director of supply chain research at Zero 0100 and the founder of the Circular Supply Chain Network. Today, she's uh, a vice president, global supply chain sustainability leader at Genpack, a global professional service firm delivering a range of business and technology services designed to drive digital transformation, innovation, and, and growth uh, for, for different client companies. Genpack began in 1997 as a business unit within General Electric and in January 2005 became an independent company, just as a, as a background information. If that wouldn't be already very impressive as a, as a resume, she's also an advisory board member at the Manufacturing and Supply Chain Management Program of the Western Washington University, a book author, as, as I mentioned already earlier, and she holds a Six Sigma green belt. So I'm really looking forward to today's session to talk about all of this and a lot more. Uh, thank you for joining me on the show today, Deborah Dow. Thanks, Michael. I'm really looking forward to it. I appreciate your having me on. Great. And I mean, there, there's so many things we could start talking about. Um, your, your, your resume is, is impressive. And I mean, we, we had several discussions earlier. And as I mentioned, you are my go-to person for circular supply chain. So but let's maybe start with, with one topic that you mentioned in your book, uh, The Circular Supply Chain, 17 Common Questions. You state that there is a disconnect between those planning for circularity, like the, the chief circularity officers uh, of this world, and those who will operationalize it. And you go as far as writing the lack of supply chain professionals at the circularity party is outright bonkers, which I, I think is a is a good statement. Um, so 
I, I fundamentally agree with that assessment. And um, to also get uh, our listeners on board, could you explain to us what a circular supply chain is and why it is so critical from your perspective in order to accomplish the transformation to a circular world? Absolutely. Look, I see the world through a supply chain lens, of course. So when I look at a problem or a movement, a shift, a transition in economic models, I will, of course, say, where does supply chain play? And as I started to interact with the circularity community, gosh, four or five years ago, there really weren't any operations folks around. Nobody in procurement, nobody in logistics, no one in manufacturing, which uh, to me is really confusing because at the end of the day, we're going to be the ones that buy it, that move it, that make it, that bring it back, service it, and so forth. Um, so the way that I'm thinking about this, and I, I haven't found a better way yet, but I'm very open to it. So if any of you have ideas, please let me know. I think about circularity as a Venn diagram. So if you think about those three big circles on a Venn diagram, uh, I would call them circular business models, circular materials, and the last one is circular operations. And as mm. folks go out and learn about the circular economy for the first time, uh, the internet has a lot more resources for circular business models and circular mm. innovative materials. We have almost nothing on circular mm. operations. And so it's not that I think one is more important than the other. I think it's the one that has been forgotten a little bit. So supply chain to me happens where circular operations and materials overlap. We don't mm. often determine the material that's used. There's engineers and R&D uh, material scientists who work on that. Um, but we are the ones that find it. And these last couple of years in COVID taught us how important it is to understand tolerance levels on our inputs, alternative suppliers, uh, and we and supply chain are the ones that help to do that. So that's kind of the first thing to keep in mind. As we then think about what makes up a circular supply chain, I think there's really four big components. Simply stated, it's what's coming into any process. You could think even mm -hmm. about uh, a meal you cook or uh, how you get to work, any process that you do during the day. And for supply chain professionals, this might be in a warehouse, this might be logistics, this might be manufacturing. Uh, today, almost everything coming in is uh, virgin materials that comes from the planet. Mm -hmm. So finite materials, we only have so much of it. Uh, and the transition to a circular supply chain then says everything that comes in is circular, which means it's secondary uh, or renewable. For five-star, mm -hmm. A-plus, best results, we actually want to start with a finished good. So mm -hmm. imagine a world where we repair more than we build new, which is a crazy <laughs> mind-altering <laughs> proposition, but that's one of the elements. So on the way in, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, nothing comes directly from the planet unless it's quite renewable. Second, on the way out, uh, if you have had any exposure to uh, lean management, lean thinking, uh, we are taught that there are predominantly two uh, material streams uh, that comes out of a process. There's a value stream and there's a waste stream. In circular supply chains, of course, we want to minimize those waste streams by minimizing the amount of materials we need, uh, but then figure out how to monetize those waste streams and give it to another supply chain so that they can use it as inputs. And then we start thinking about the process in between inputs and outputs. Simply stated, that's to use less, which we do a lot of already in supply chain. Mm -hmm. our, our big focus is how do we become more efficient? And then the last one 
is really to participate in systems which supply chains already are. They're these wonderfully complex living, <laughs> breathing systems uh, that can get disrupted, sure, but that are also fairly resilient. Mm -hmm. These, though, will become shorter, more regional, more concentrated. I think uh, materials will be locally sourced through urban mining, extensive repair networks, and in-market mm -hmm. production. So if I take all of that and make a very, very simple explanation about circular supply chains, they decouple growth from inputs, which allows the business to grow, a country to grow, a company to grow, and they produce only value streams, which again goes one step past zero waste to landfill, which a lot of supply mm -hmm. chains have worked on so far. So that decoupling piece is really important. Even if we support a linear business model, we can drive circular operations underneath. And even if the consumer never knows, that's okay. We can save money and increase resilience in the operations behind it. Perfect, excellent explanation. And, and I, I think you fully, you're fully right that very often the operations topic is, is forgotten. But that's very often also driven as uh, when you talk about circularity, many people bring it down to recycling or end of life activities. And if it's if, if you only think about end of life, then naturally the operations are, are less important. And, and that's where, where I think we need to broaden the definition, the broaden the understanding of what circularity is and also what circular operations and circular supply chain is. Now you talked about the values, value streams and very often when we talk about supply chain, we talk about a very narrow scope. So, so a lot of companies basically look at their direct suppliers, maybe their direct customers, but they're not necessarily looking beyond that. Now, in a circular world, we need to take a much broader view um, than what we do today, more at the end-to-end -end value chain, or better, the end-to-end -end circle, if, if you want, where, where you basically take everything from the point of time where we take new raw materials out of the ground or, or where we harvest them otherwise to the end of life and then basically back to refurbishing, reuse, recycle. And it becomes an end-to-end an -end value cycle there with, with a lot of players uh, along the value chain that before have never uh, basically worked together. And, and that also changes the perspective, the scope, the role of supply chain professionals quite dramatically as, as they need to um, be much more present in areas that they that they haven't been before. So from, from your point of view, how can we address this need for a broader perspective and transparency along the end-to-end -end value circle? And I'm, I'm aware that there is not such a thing as an end-to-end -end circle, but Let's not get into the details of the mathematical part of, of what I just said, but um, let's, let's keep it there. I like it. End to end circle, the never ending loop. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Listen, I think most supply chain professionals would say we do look across networks, uh, but the reality is it's really difficult to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, a recent study shows less than 5% of supply chains can see past their tier two suppliers, that means they're supplier's supplier. And then after that, we really don't have a lot of visibility. Part of that is because we never built our supply chains for visibility. We built them mm -hmm. mainly for cost. 
but systematically, technology-wise, of course, there's more of a desire to extend visibility, especially, again, coming with the disruption that we've seen these last couple of years. Now, everyone along a value chain wants to see that end customer, end user demand that helps to stabilize mm -hmm. the noise that we hear mm -hmm. and the changes in demand across the supply chain. So that has been a big focus, and there has been lots and lots and lots of money put into trying to figure out how to predict what consumers will do, as fickle as they are. Less has been put into upstream trying to get uh, visibility, but I predict that is quickly changing as we try to have a better idea of uh, how we could be so disrupted. So for example, supply chains are finding that even if they have three different suppliers for a component, it might be that all of their supplier suppliers are the same company. So at the end of the day, they actually are quite fragile, even though they think they've covered their bases. So that's one piece of just how we ended up here today. A big challenge in supply chain is uh, nobody is in charge. You have different independent companies all trading with each other. It's a chain, it's a web, it's not a pyramid. And so we can usually find out information from our own suppliers, but once we get to their suppliers or beyond, now we're two or three or four levels removed from any contractual agreement that's in place. And so that's where we start to really struggle in understanding the dynamic nature. Again, it's not like our supplier, supplier, supplier is the same all the time. Uh, they often face the same supply constraints as everyone else across the value chain. So they are looking at alternatives as well. Two areas I think can help this a lot, uh, standards and technology. Now, <clears throat> don't leave, I said the word standards. People get really turned off by standards, but really turned on by technology. So we'll talk about <laughs> them both. Uh, standards, we need to work on this in many, many ways. We need to understand the types of data we can share, how to share it in a way that doesn't give away our trade secrets how to share it in a way that doesn't take months to build the digital pipes to exchange this data. And many views I find on data were shaped by that old adage that data is the new oil. So how are we gonna monetize it and sell it? And I think that's too bad. I think it's prevented a barrier to willingness to share data where I think mm -hmm. instead as we go forward, it becomes a minimum, almost table stakes to play with each other in the business world. So I think one is we've got to figure out standards. Uh, groups like GS1 are doing a wonderful job uh, leading the space in trying to figure out how we can exchange data. Uh, the other piece then, technology. So in order to help us protect our trade secrets and map out our supply chains, become more aware of upstream and downstream, uh, technology would certainly be the path forward. There are lots of innovators in this space. Many are turning to technologies like blockchain, and I'm gonna put one mm. small caveat in the challenges in this space. Uh, and I, again, welcome the challenges. Blockchain works marvelously well for digital assets, when we wanna keep track of something that lives mm. in bits and bytes, and we wanna make sure that that item uh, has integrity, chain of custody, and so forth. It works less effectively in the physical world because the physical world has a way of moving around and boxes can open themselves and materials can go walking and the system never knows that that happened. And so I find that the knee-jerk reaction in the circularity world seems to be how do we use a blockchain-based technology to track and trace? 
The challenge is I find blockchain this is overkill often. While advances are being made to make it more efficient, it's still tremendously energy heavy, which violates the first principle mm. of the circular economy, which is to use less, not more. So mm. how can we use existing technology that really is very effective at tracking an item through a system? Um, and we don't have to go too complicated. So that's my one plea for folks is challenge whatever technology it is that's being pitched, challenge it a little bit and try to figure out what can we do with what we have already? And are we asking the right questions? Are we developing the right use cases? And are we doing that together in a way that's gonna scale? So for example, uh, we might wanna know where something comes from so we can add a label mm -hmm. that we think would be compelling to a consumer. In reality, I think the big push for all of this space is gonna come from regulation. And we're starting mm -hmm. to see more push from regulatory bodies. Then we can start imagining a world where we need to be able to share information with regulators um, that doesn't give away any of our IP. Mm. That's not necessarily going to help you compete uh, for a consumer's mm. attention. So I think this world of technology is uh, a fascinating space. There's a lot of really promising uh, companies starting, but that's my one <laughs> ask is for <laughs> folks to just be curious and push back a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you mentioned a, a couple of really interesting uh, aspects here. So, so um, I think at the end of the day, it also depends on what type of company you are. Because um, if you're in B2C, it's much easier for you to interact with the customers and look at the end of life of your product than if you're a B2B company. We, we worked with a, with a company recently in plastics, and they're very early on in the supply chain or in the value chain. So they create the plastics granular that then basically breaches out into thousands of different products and they alone have 7,000 products in their catalog and that breaches out into hundreds of thousands of different products. So how how are you finding your role in their value chain and how do you track basically where your products go and where your material come from? So it's, it's very often also a question of who takes responsibility and, and how can you drive that? Uh, in that in that context, um, the other side is naturally the the, the technology, as as you mentioned. I mean that that is a, that is a huge question. Um, there is this initiative uh, by the EU of the digital passports for the textile and the electronics industry, and we had a lot of discussions about that. And specifically from associations, there's a big fear that many of their members have a very low maturity when it comes to digital. So for them to implement something like the digital passport is not only difficult from what you mentioned from the complexity of the fact of implementing it, but they just don't have the starting point of, of having that digital maturity. How, how do you see that? Because that, that will be one of the key questions do organizations have the digital maturity to then implement and utilize the solutions that will enable them to do the right things when it comes to circularity, to sustainability, and, and all of the things we're talking about? Totally. Look, most of our supply chains are less digitally enabled than we want to believe. There are still many processes that are on paper and they have the white copy and the yellow copy and the mm -hmm. pink copy and it's by hand. <laughs> and then it's diligently filed. It's just not done in a way that uh, technology can help to enhance. And in some cases, you can make an argument that not everything has to be digital. Sometimes things are working just fine. However, 
if we want to be able to show something like a digital passport, something that I call a digital thread, we can pull a thread all the way through the life mm -hmm. times of materials and yeah. products. Um, then we need to make this a little bit easier in ourselves. And uh, a mm -hmm. company that you and I have talked about in the past is called Circularize. They mm -hmm. uh, are working with Porsche to map their supply chain, which is, get this, mm -hmm. 20 tiers deep. 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a lot. And to your point, it's not going to be one component back 20. It's going to be hundreds of components, thousands mm -hmm. of components back. So you imagine like the roots of a tree splitting every time. Uh, and it just gets very, very complex. So we can make this easier on ourselves if we reduce the number of tiers, reduce the number of stops to create shorter supply chains. People might think you're crazy. This mm -hmm. isn't going to happen. We've globalized. It's working just <laughs> fine. But again, if we challenge the idea that we have to start with a component from a mine and instead imagine where we can start to reclaim and refurbish, we can move faster and it's actually less expensive even though man hours go up. So uh, we can start to reimagine what's happening. And again, with um, the automotive industry, they have figured this out. Of course, they do a lot of refurbishment. We're also seeing a lot mm. of increase in technology for disassembly of consumer electronics, which then will allow the internal components to be reused, which again means you can go much faster and if you were to start all the way from scratch again. So that then makes this uh, less to map and less to manage mm. as we go through. Second, the premise of the circular economy is that we get materials from each other instead of from the planet, which means all supply chains are gonna become suppliers to other supply chains, not just in finished goods components, but that means any of our uh, materials or resources like water, air, et cetera. Uh, and so we'll need to share a lot about those in order to cast kind of a, this broader net. And we've talked about that a little bit before. The Nirvana state, which again is not going to be possible everywhere, is a concept from the 1960s called industrial symbiosis, where factories actually co-locate and physically exchange water heat materials through pipes all automatically. And this, I think, could start to gain more popularity, uh, especially as many supply chains are starting to reconsider their networks and the way they have manufacturing. I don't think it's going to be overnight. It's not easy because even if you move your own factory, what about your suppliers and their suppliers and these massive ecosystems that have built up along, around the world? But if we take this idea of 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 factories that are co-located and we make this regional, now we have some idea of what uh, mm -hmm. a circular ecosystem might look like. But again, we don't want to be focusing on uh, recycling. That's sort of the last resort because it takes a lot of effort to put a recycled good back into a value chain. So then we start to flip this on its head and say, how can we start to uh, use technology to make it more economically viable to reclaim components and get them back into our value chain? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've been working with BASF, and I think they're a really good example of exactly what they call Verbund system, which is exactly. exactly this symbiosis where they build a factory and then they notice, oh, in this chemical process, this is basically what we have left over. So let's build another plant next to it that uses that 
to create another product and then another and another. And they've been building up a huge factory along the river in Ludwigshafen where they basically have one factory next to each other, basically exactly as you as you mentioned, with the pipes going from one to each other. It's it's impressive. It's it's really impressive. And, and I agree, I think that is is likely where we go to. And we see a lot of industrial parks actually starting to think that way and think about how can we enable that as a, as a provider of the space of the of the location uh, in that in that context. And and I guess that is that is related to what you call in your book as the fourth and, and fifth industrial revolution, basically bringing all of that together and then enabling that with the with the technologies in that context. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, it's I have to chuckle sometimes that we are already talking about the fifth industrial revolution, but we're still in the middle of the fourth. And I think ultimately this whatever technology movement we're in will start to collapse a little bit. We're getting quicker in between industrial revolutions uh, and this land of hyper-individualization is what a lot of folks think is gonna happen with the fifth. I argue that that's starting to happen now. We're seeing where um, folks are getting laser cut suits online that gets shipped to your house. (laughs) Uh, We're starting to see um, water, fizzy water vendors starting to open these spaces uh, in city streets. So you can get free water or you can pay 10 cents and get whatever flavor combination you want. Uh, and so I think this is going to be where we take the world, which is actually wonderful. Because if you imagine um, a pair of jeans that fits you perfectly because it was made just for you, you probably aren't going to buy six or seven pairs of jeans looking for that perfect pair. So it's going to help reduce material use. Uh, and then if we can com- uh, compare that with this idea of uh, repair and uh, local sourcing of materials, then we can start to get to a world where in-market production, even if it's micro, uh, is actually possible. And it ju- it's often just sounds so crazy to think about a future where we're going to shift away from the mega factories and into much more decentralized, much more automated We have a lot of discussions about what are people going to do for work and so forth. Um, And it's not so outlandish. A lot of this technology exists already. uh, And we're starting to sort of be on this cusp of some sort of transition or a a mashing of a few industrial revolutions. (laughs) And I, I think one thing we will see is the earlier industrial revolutions were very much driven by technology or by developments in in production and, and engineering and, and, and all of these things. I think the next development will be driven a lot also by the mindset of people because I, I think what we're seeing is that people are rethinking their consumption, rethinking what they want to have, rethinking how they want to consume and how they want to get their product. And that will naturally be driven backwards into the organizations, into the supply chains and fundamentally change exactly these concepts that you just outlined. In that, in that context. Now, the last chapter of your book is called As We Finish Our Drinks. And you state that some of the ideas you explore in your book are just that, ideas. Um, now, in our case, we have coffee, at least in my case, so not, not talking about all of us. But still, I mean, if you would outline your supply chain of the future and you already talked a little bit about what's the, what's the nirvana, what's the, what's the end state, but what would it look like from your point of view? What would be the role of the supply chain professional of the future? How would they interact with the broader organization? How would we arrive at this 
target of a sustainable, circular world where we, as you pointed out, where we're not taking raw materials out of the ground, but we're basically keeping them in circulation and mine them where they've, where they've been used in the last iteration. Absolutely. All right. Two scenarios. And I did hint at this. Imagine a product starts not, again, with a material or a mine, but uh, the process starts with an existing product. That's the first step. And let's say the product user doesn't have a use for it anymore. Maybe something on it broke, they stuck it in the corner, and then after a couple months they realize, wow, this is actually not that important to my life. So they take it to a repair depot on the corner of their street. Couldn't be more convenient. The depot is able to diagnose the issue. Maybe not because that diagnoser is a very brilliant engineer, but because they can have the help of technology through, let's imagine, augmented reality glasses that's connected to a catalog of products in the cloud. They discover what needs to be fixed. They use a 3D printer to print the spare part, the inputs for which came from that same city through a new type of waste management, uh, air quotes around waste management, uh, to reclaim materials through the automated disassembly that I had mentioned earlier. The item is repaired and posted on an app, and let's say later that day, a new user arrives to claim it. That's one scenario that is, let's say, consumer or user-centric. Now let's think about another one that feels a little bit more supply chain-y. Let's imagine a new product line is created, a new pair of sneakers, a new mixer, a new whatever. Uh, supply chain planners decide how much they need to make, and they drop orders into a manufacturing network, not dissimilar to what we do today with the distribution and logistics network. The order is then manufactured at a factory quite close to the market that it's going to serve. So instead of today, where we make a whole bunch of it in one uh, centralized location and then put it into a supply chain network, imagine that we sort of flip the script. It goes all the way close to the uh, market. And uh, that then factory could be used across a couple of different companies. So instead of a huge run in order to hit our uh, economically viable minimum order quantity, we can actually share that across a couple of supply chains. This shortens the physical supply chain by a lot, especially if those components, again, can be captured and processed regionally. Now, the craziest mm. part about this maybe is that all of the technology I just mentioned exists today, not as an idea, as an actually, like commercially, you could go and pay for these services today. So that's the vision. What it means for a supply chain professional then is to take one more step in our critical thinking problem solving to challenge this one-way consumptive linear flow that just won't last forever. We're very disruptable. Disruptions come from everything. And frankly, that's sort of the thrill that a lot of supply chain professionals get in our field is that problems happen all the time and we get to come in and save the day. We can incorporate a couple additional KPIs. Now, I think ultimately we're always going to be responsible for service level cost quality. I think that's always going to be hmm. our core value add. Well, we can start looking at three. One, the percentage of secondary material inputs. Many supply chains do this already, and if you are one of them, then just start to differentiate among secondary material types with recycling as the lowest value type. So you get the least points if it's 100% recycled. 
uh, again, because we want to do reuse. Second, <laughs> uh, material intensity. So how much material goes into a process to support how much value of a product? It could be expressed in revenue. It could be expressed in cost of goods. But something that says, look, how much material did this take? And that can also help you capture how much you're having problems with quality and scrap, obsolescence, shrinkage. You can start to understand a lot about your process by watching a material intensity. And then you could look at something like a carbon intensity or a carbon grams per unit to start developing what's called a carbon intuition and comfort level across the team. There is a, certainly a relationship between circularity and carbon. It's hotly debated how close that relationship is, but at a very minimum, I think carbon can act as a very interesting proxy for resource use across our supply chain, uh, whether that resource is energy or a material. So I think it's good for a supply chain professional to start to develop that muscle. Yeah, perfect. Very good. I mean, we, we kicked off the podcast in the beginning talking about like the disconnect between the supply chain and the circularity experts, uh, the later one, no, the earlier one, not being at the party uh, at the moment. Now, from your point of view, what does it take to get an active solution-centric dialogue going, speak the same language, have the same words, and how do we take the right actions, be it as regulators, as consumers, as customers, as employees, as investors, to basically get to that vision that I fully, fully subscribe to that, that you just outlined, either scenario, I, I think would be perfect if we could reach that in the not too far away future. Perfect. So I think the biggest one, and don't roll your eyes, everybody, is to get curious. Find out where items around you are coming from. Even if you got it at a local farmer's market, there was a small supply chain. Supply chain brought everything around you to you. And to start imagining what happened with this before it came to me. We often have made-in stickers, um, but we know that's just the tip of the iceberg. Everyone's short on time, so instead of launching into a, a huge research project on your own, you could pick up a book from Christopher Mims, uh, who wrote something called Arriving Today. He's a Wall Street Journal uh, journalist, and it's a marvelous book. He physically follows an item from China all the way to a U.S. household. They've also made a one-hour documentary uh, on this as well, which is well worth the time. And then you can start to just be aware of this global web that we've built. So build that awareness and start to be curious. I wonder where this came from. Then my ask is please take off your consumer end user customer hat and put on your professional hat instead. What can you do in your job to take your process slightly more circular. I truly believe this is what it's going to take. It's not going to be us as consumers demanding. It's going to be us as decision makers in our professional lives, changing the decisions that we make. And it's okay if a consumer never actually knows that the process changed from underneath them. It's okay if we compete on other things and collaborate on how can we have more material security uh, and just a better operation overall. So that's my plea is start to become curious. If you're a supply chain professional already, I know you're super busy. Try to go invite yourself to a couple parties. Find out who is running the discussions on circularity in your company and at least shoot them off an email or two. It should take you less than five minutes and to start making a little bit of noise so that people know that we're here. 
Perfect. Thanks a lot. And I, I, I love the idea of the double double responsibility because, I mean, we very often talk about the consumers will create the pressure, but a, a good majority of the consumers are professionals at the same time. So why not do both at the same time and, and basically drive things professionally that you also drive in your, in your personal life? Absolutely. Very good. The coffee is empty and it's time to wrap up this episode of the Circular Coffee Break. Thanks a lot, Deborah. As always, a lot of new insights and new ideas uh, for all of us. Um, to all of you listening, if you have any comments, ideas, suggestions, um, as mentioned before, let us know. Leave a comment, send us a note at info at um, Again, recommendation, get the book, Circular Supply Chain, 17 Common Questions. If you want to get a quick idea of a lot of the topics that Deborah just mentioned, um, for me, it was a really good inside view exactly through the lens of a supply chain professional. I've personally never worked in supply chain, but it gives you a really interesting perspective through another lens exactly to, to fuel that curiosity that we all need. Um, also, please remember to subscribe to stay in the loop. New episodes will drop on a bi-weekly basis, and we have a lot of really interesting guests coming up with a lot of different perspectives. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you here at the Circular Coffee Break.